when you put an ad out on the internet, you know, let's say you're selling cookware, right? It's like, hey, home chefs, come buy this cookware. It's almost like you're sticking an arm out to like grab somebody's hand and then pull them up over the edge of the cliff. And the more relevant things you have in your ad, for example, saying Prime Day or even Mother's Day or Father's Day, it's just more hands that help pull somebody over the cliff. And if they decide not to click on the ad, you push them over. Yeah, exactly. Step on the (laughs) (laughs) fingers. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. All right, Moyes, we talk about TapCard every episode. We love TapCard. But did you know that TapCard is not for 70 to 90% of your customers? In fact, it's best used for your top 10 to 30% of customers. You get direct access to your VIP segment and the LTV of that top 10% will increase your cohort LTV by about two and a half times. The best part is the instant page loading, the better user experience, the one-click checkout. It's a fantastic experience for your best customers. And you can't forget the free push notifications. If you want to try TapCart, go to tapcart.com slash limited. Okay, Nick, episode nine, season four. Uh, there's just three episodes left after this one. So this season's coming, like, you know, I feel like we did four or five really quickly this season. And now we're sort of uh, at a pace of recording them weekly as opposed to like, you know, two or three a week. So the season's lasted a little bit longer. Yeah, it has. Uh, I got a bunch of stuff to chat about, but before we get there, I want to play Guess That Business. Are you ready? I love this segment. Me too. I love this segment so much. Um, Okay. This is the business that I think you're most likely to get. I thought there was zero chance you were going to get Ace Hardware. And then you guess like, you know, O'Reilly Auto Parts, which is basically the same thing as Ace Hardware, I think. Yeah. So I was really impressed by that. Uh, this business, I think, is a, is a high likelihood of getting it. Okay. It's 530 stores, 489 in the United States. Okay. Each store is on average 11,250 square feet. Okay. There's 21,000 employees, 21,000 total, 12,500 are full-time. Okay. 66% of this business is e-commerce, which I actually think is stunningly high. And I think that if you don't get it, it'll be because of this. 66% of the business is done through e-commerce. 34% is done through retail stores. And they have you know 530 retail stores. Wow. 8.7 billion in revenue. Okay. COGS, cost of goods sold, make up 58% of the business or- uh, 58% of the revenue, sorry, 58% of the revenue. So 8.7 billion in revenue, 5 billion COGS, 2.1 billion SGNA. And the 2.1 billion is, you know, 25% of revenue. 1.5 billion in EBITDA, flat from last year. Okay. $8 billion market cap. So let me go over it again really quickly. 530 stores, most in the United States, 11,000 square feet per store. 21,000 employees, about half are full-time. Two-thirds of the business is e-commerce. One-third is retail stores, which are those 530 retail stores. $8.7 billion in revenue. $5 billion in COGS. $2.1 billion in SG&A. $1.5 billion in EBITDA. Interesting. And okay, question time. Yeah. Do they sell something consumable? Yes, but a very small part of their business is consumable. 
certainly under 20%, but probably a 10%, or maybe 10%, okay. but certainly under 20% is consumable. I don't know why I'm thinking like a sporting goods store. Ooh, uh, keep asking some questions. What sporting goods stores do you know that are 500 stores or more? I mean, I actually don't know what sporting goods stores are relevant right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, these guys did nine billion in revenue, eight point seven billion in revenue uh, in twenty twenty two. So that's a lot, and five hundred thirty stores. So, uh, and like, I guarantee you, bit to one of these stores. Who's the buyer in these stores? Like, who's excited to go in and get something, even if they're not paying? Generally, I think everyone is excited to go in the store. It generally represents not all of their business, but a lot of their business represents newness, a new chapter in your life, something exciting happening. Like not all of it, but like more than a majority of their business represents a new chapter in your life. Okay. So I don't I, I don't think it's just girlfriends. I think it's you, you know, everyone, you, me, I think everyone gets excited. People friends. Yeah, it's people friends. I do think that like um, the one thing I would say is that you're excited the first time. The third time, you hate this place. Oh, okay. So at first I was thinking sporting goods. Then I was thinking like a Hallmark. But then I was thinking paper source. And I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Hallmark and Paper Source, I don't think they would do two-thirds of their revenue as e-commerce. No, they're way smaller. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would say the other, the other thing I would say is this is a high consideration purchase, high AOV. So I don't think you're going to go in and like spend, I don't know what the AOV is, but let's say it might be north of $1,000. You're not going to spend $1,000 on your like, without thinking about it a bunch. That's why I think that, um, you're going to have to come in a few times. I think I've got it. Yeah, hit me. Is it our buddy William? Yes. Yes. Yeah, baby. Let's go. Right, First one, whole, right? Say the whole William thing. Sonoma. That's right. Yes, that's exactly who it is. High consideration. You know, I think the yeah. first time everyone's excited. It represents a new chapter in your life. By the time you go in the third time, you're like, just buy me a table or a bed. I don't give a fuck about this place anymore. I got to get out of here. You know, I'm surprised actually. The cookware and kitchenware category was one that's just been on fire for the last maybe like five or six years. I'm surprised no, there's no other like competitors to Williams Sonoma that have tried to take on some sort of a marketplace approach to products inside the home. The only one I could think of that's gotten maybe somewhat close is like Verishop. Verishop is started by this guy named Imran Khan who used to work at, uh, not Imran Khan, the ex-president of Pakistan, because you know, I'm, I'm at home with my parents right now. And if I say that name, my father is going to come into this room and start asking questions about Imran. But Imran Khan is this guy who used to work at Snapchat and started Verishop, uh, which is like, you know, trying to be, I don't want to say an Amazon for Shopify businesses, but something to that effect. Let me uh, tell you a little bit about William Sonoma, where I think it might it might help you understand where they're coming from a little bit, or my, at least the uh, like how I answer the questions a little bit more. Because you said, do they sell okay. consumables? And I said, a little bit. Right. William Sonoma has three brands under it, three big brands. Do you know what the three brands are? No, tell me. Okay. Pottery Barn, West Elm, and William Sonoma. So actually, two of the three brands are more in the furniture space 
and only one, like uh, William Sonoma, is more in the, like the kitchen goods, you know, home cooking, all that kind of space. The other two brands are Pottery Barn and, and West Elm, and they're much, you know, they're in the furniture space almost exclusively, and they're mostly e-commerce. Yeah, that's that's the crazy part. That's why I was like, this is what might trip you up. They're sixty six percent e-commerce. 34% retail stores. But I would say this, I would say if you're in their store and you're like, I know what I want, you might just go on your phone or go home and purchase it rather than like, cause you're like, maybe I can find a coupon code or something to that effect. Right. You don't even want to carry it. Yeah. Yeah. You're certainly not going to carry it home. So 66% of their source, 66% of William Sonoma as a brand is done in e-commerce. 34% is generated from retail stores. And I bet that 34% is more, I'm not sure, but I would guess it, uh, uh, you know, gears more to, or leans more towards William Sonoma, where you're like, I can purchase these glasses or this pot or this pan versus, you know, West Elm or Pottery Barn, where you're like, I'm going to purchase this stuff on the internet because I need it to have it delivered anyway. And I don't want to go to the guy who I'm like, you know, and be like, what, what's your address? And you're like, one, two, three Main Street, except Main Street is really hard to spell. So you're going to have to go over it 10 times. So I feel like it might be more online when it comes to furniture stores. Okay, you know, let me give you a few stats about it. Yeah. What is which one of those do you think is the biggest? Pottery Barn, West Elm, or William Sonoma? West Elm? No, it's Pottery Barn. Wow. From a revenue perspective and a store perspective, Pottery Barn does 3.5 billion with 188 stores. West Elm, 2.3 billion with 122 stores. William Sonoma, 1.3 billion with 165 stores. So actually, William Sonoma is the smallest of those three. Wow. I would not have guessed that. Me neither. Uh, until I was it looking. seems like 1.3, just knowing that was last year's revenue. Yes. Just knowing some of the cookware brands revenue in the e-commerce space, 1.3 seems awfully low. Yeah. I, I don't even know Hexclad or, uh, you know, Caraway or, uh, you know, Mycin's revenue, but I would imagine that like, you know, Hexclad, just based on what I hear, must be doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Caraway, I would guess is north of a hundred million dollars in revenue. William Sonoma is doing 1.3 billion, and they're not just selling cookware. You know, they're selling baking soda, right? Everything, cooking classes, and everything in there. Yeah, and they, they'll, you know, there's only 165 William Sonoma stores, which I thought was surprising. Um, so not as many stores for William. And Sonoma the the e-commerce split of 66 percent is that equal across all three? Like all three are about 66 percent? No, I don't know the answer to that. If it did say that, I didn't get to it. But yeah, it's sixty six percent total in e commerce. I would guess it's more brick and mortar. I guess it's more furniture stores because at William yeah. Sonoma, you're like, I'm going to buy this pot. I'm probably going to take it home with me. Uh, right. If you're like, I'm going to what Pottery Barn. I'm obviously not walking home with this table today. Like, I can't even walk home with this table today. It's not like you guys store yeah. it here, like IKEA. So I might as well buy on the internet, where I might be able to get a twenty percent discount code. I wonder if, like, you know, when you order in store to have it delivered, if that's considered e commerce because it's not being picked up right there. That is a game that people play all the time where they're like, let me try and gamify my stats to make the business look better. Because like Wall Street is going to want you to be like, yeah, this is an e-commerce business, not a brick and mortar business. You know, we won't need as many employees. We won't need as many stores. Don't worry about us. We're, every, we're selling everything on the internet. So they might do something like that. That'd be interesting. It's something too, I feel like we've talked about before where the Wall Street interpretation of some of these businesses is so wrong. And like, who's the one to make the, de- the decision outside of like analysts? who are just these, they're just known as analysts. The other thing that I've noticed, like I've been in a couple of these stores in the last year, is that at, at like West Elm, they're trying to remove prices from everything or they're moving to like digital price tags. 
So I'm like, what are you, like surge pricing or something? Like, you know, the price tag is now not like a card like it used to be at, you know, Ikea where you're like, okay, this is the price. It's digital. So I'm like, it looks like it's a, you know, one of those Kindles, like the actual, not the Kindle Fire, but like the Kindle e-ink. And I'm like, what are you, how often are you guys changing prices here? Like, is it going to go up and down (laughs) later today? Should I just wait here for the lower price? Like, I don't know what's going on, but it looks like they're changing prices more fluidly than they used to be. Have you ever like uh, bought furniture on the internet and then seen, you know, one piece of furniture on the internet on Wayfair, but like the same exact piece is then sold on like seven or eight other e-commerce sites, just named different things and priced all up and down. Have you seen that before? Definitely. It's almost like you need a Trivago for China shipped furniture. Uh, But I, I would imagine that to some degree, they probably thought, well, these guys, you know, furniture prices, because there's so many players, it probably kind of changes on a on a daily, maybe even weekly, weekly rate in terms of like what and also probably demand wise too, like what supply and demand looks like for furniture generally. Yeah, I bet for like West Elm or Pottery Barn, they're like this furniture we're almost out of stock on. And so let's increase the price to try and reduce. Like if someone's going to pay for it, they have to pay more because we're almost, I, I, I would guess that that's what they're thinking. But although I'm not sure, it is crazy. Like uh, the mattress businesses used to do this a lot too, where like, you know, you look at a mattress at the Seedley store and at JCPenney and at Sears and at Bloomingdale's or Macy's. And the price, like, you know, you couldn't price shop because they would name the, the one would be called Sealy Beauty Rest 7. The other one would be called Sealy Beauty Rest Cloud, even though they were the exact same mattress. Right. They just named them differently. So you could never price shop. And when you walked in, it was just an opaque uh, atmosphere, which is what the direct consumer companies were initially trying to, uh, like, you know, destroy. They were like, let's make this really transparent. Although right. now I think there's a little bit of opaqueness there as well. But yeah, um, there there used to be like right when TikTok started or maybe right when I downloaded it and started watching, there'd be guys who were like, I'm going to furnish my entire like backyard. You know, I've got this beautiful pool. I was going to buy restoration hardware furniture and it was going to cost $80,000. I got one container in China from where restoration hardware got their furniture and it cost me, you know, 6000 for the container and 7000 for the furniture. So I paid 13000 instead of 70000 for restoration hardware. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah. I remember that. That was probably like, I feel like early last year, maybe. That was where I was like, TikTok is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's and now I'm like, okay, it's disrupting like, you know, restoration hardware uh, because somebody's like, and you know, you pulled it out of the container and it looked perfect. And you're like, okay, this is literally the same thing that you were going to get from restoration hardware. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of Chinese products being manufactured, you remember the world's biggest shopping day? Yeah, uh, like Singles Day, right? Yeah. So last year, Singles Day did $84 billion in sales, gross sales, which was actually flat from 2021. And what was interesting was a couple things. It was flat for, I think, mainly around just general recession-ish type thoughts or, uh, you know, like supply chain, whatnot. But um in the sale, so 11.11 is the actual singles day sale. On October 24th, so like probably a little over two weeks before singles day, on October 24th, consumers can actually pre-add items to a cart. So they can they can look at some of the deals, like the early deals, and then add those items to cart. Then from November 1st to November 3rd, companies can adjust their offers change the pricing, increase the discount, decrease the discount, basically make adjustment based on 
add to cart data from yeah. the October 24th. And then 11.11 is the actual singles day. I just thought that the pre-sale is almost like a pre-game, the singles day so was so smart because you do a couple of things. One is you give people ample time. I feel like on Prime Day, I'm, I feel rushed to make a decision about what I want to get. Or what ends up happening on Black Friday is if you don't like sit and think about what you need, you feel like you need everything or you need nothing. And then, and then you miss the really good sales. So I thought it was pretty smart to make like a an event a around preview. Yeah, exactly. The other interesting thing was uh, President Xi Jinping uh, apparently is not a fan of China being known as like the live streaming, like influencer live stream shopping capital of the world. And so his opinion uh, lowered how much live streaming was done last year because he's not a fan of what it does for China's celebrity culture or the perception of Chinese culture. But even within that, in 14 hours, they did a billion dollars in live stream sales, which seems like it would never happen in this side of the world, just based on you know regular like user behavior and shopper behavior. Then I did some data on uh, Prime Day. Prime Day last year was two days. So instead of one day, it was two days, no pregame day. And very little like heads up with Prime Day, even to the merchants. Merchants barely get a heads up when it comes to knowing when Prime Day is for the year. Their sales were $12 billion across two days, which was up a billion dollars. 300 million items purchased, almost $2 billion in savings as a result. One down from that, Black Friday. So Black Friday as a national holiday only did $9.2 billion in e-commerce sales in 2022. And then that brings me to what happened on June 2nd, which I don't have numbers for, but is known as Shop Day by Shopify. Did you see this? No. So on June 2nd, so have you have you played around with the the Shop app on your phone? No. Eight days ago was Shop Day. Eight days ago was Shop Day. So I'm in e-commerce and I've you know I've never heard of it. So okay, I'll give my opinion on it after. But basically what happened was they put together like a list of merchants and I think it was only about 25 or 30 merchants. And on shop day, basically Shopify just gave out, I think, multi-millions of dollars worth of cash to shop. I'm not sure how many millions was given out. A lot of money was basically given out for free. I saw you give out like $100 or $500 or something, right? Yeah, I gave out $20,000 and people can, depending on when you claim it, it would be anything from like five or $10 to a hundred bucks. And at first it was supposed to be 10 grand. People redeemed it super fast. We updated it. I didn't even get a chance to tweet that it was refilled and it was gone again. I think Mr. Beast gave away like a million dollars. I'm assuming Shopify was funding it. Did Shopify give you 20,000 to give away? Okay. Yeah, they did. Yeah, so they they basically gave me a link and it had $10,000 of redeemable credits to shop. And so and you know anybody could claim it. So this year was on June 2nd. It was basically their version of like Singles Day or Primes Day. The entire shop app, I don't know if you use this app, but like it started kind of as what Route does, which is like order tracking with their mobile yeah. app. And it used yeah. to be called Arrive and then it got rebranded, I think through an acquisition, but I'm not sure to shop. And now they're also using it as a customer acquisition tool. Have you seen like the shop campaigns in the Shopify yes. backend? Have you played around with any of them? 
No, I haven't, but I've seen the shop campaigns and I've seen that people are, they're trying to make it like an aggregator where like, you know, you can, you can buy from any Shopify store through the shop app. Yeah. So what they're trying to do is like with the shop app, you can use it as a marketplace. So, you know, the, the entire idea is conversion and discovery. They want to take the, everything they know about improving e-commerce conversion and combine it with the fact that they're already getting people here to track their packages. Why not just add this discovery component? And when you click on a brand, you know, brands can build out what their shop pages look like, essentially what their storefronts look like. But the cool thing about the shop cache is it looks like now they're public about it. So I guess I can talk about it, but you can put a, a budget in and, and assign what CAC you want to pay. So you can say, I want to pay $10 for this conversion and that's all I'm going to pay. And then it'll run, it'll run the offer. Like the offer will be live. So let's say you're putting $10 per new customer for deodorant. When somebody goes to search deodorant, it will basically show a multiplier of what their own cash can be used. So for example, if they have $2 in shop cash sitting in their balance, but you have a multiplier of 5x, a shop cash boost of 5x, you will get $10 worth of value when you buy this deodorant. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Basically, I can say how much ever shop cash you have, I can put a multiplier against. Exactly. Except the confusing part, which is still confusing to me as I explain this, is like how the CAC directly attributes to what your multiplier looks like. That's too uh, complicated. Uh, I don't know why they would have done something. Like, I do use a shop app a lot to purchase, I guess. Let me start there. I don't use it a lot to purchase. I um, Actually, I rarely use it, but that's because I, I just have packages that just arrive. I don't really track them. Yeah. I don't use it too much, but you know, probably once a month I'll make a purchase on the shop app. But outside of that, not really. For example, but for my mom, my mom, for example, she uses the shop app to track everything and she discovers stuff there. Um, so I think I think it is like relevant for people outside our bubble. Yeah. The only thing that's confusing to me as I guess mainly as a marketer's hat is, you know, how do I game this advertising system where I can try to acquire new customers the formula of how how it works between the bid you put and what those numbers mean doesn't fully make a lot of sense yet, but it is something worth testing. I don't know if you've played around with it much. I haven't played around with it at all. In fact, I don't even I haven't downloaded the shop app uh, only because I've never shopped on it. I'm always like I just go to people's Shopify stores. Uh, that is interesting, and I feel like there probably are a lot of people who have downloaded it, and there probably is some arbitrage to be had where you're like, I can get cheap CAC, even though it's not. Uh, you know, I, I can't spend as much as I can spend on Facebook ads or TikTok ads, but I can spend $300 or $500 a day to get really cheap CAC. I bet that that exists on the Shopify app and good for them for doing that. Yeah. I had no idea that June 2nd was shop day of like, uh, I can't believe I missed, like, you know, I'm in the industry. I follow you on Twitter. I follow Harley on Twitter. I see you guys giving away free money. I still didn't realize that there was a shop or like shop day was, uh, you know, Shopify day. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Now. I did. There was a, a handful of our brands participated in like basically being a part of the giveaway uh, with some of the money, but but I agree. I think it was it was a, a very niche nichely marketed shopping event. It wasn't like I don't think any of my friends outside of e commerce even knew knew about it. Yeah, you know, you were talking about Prime Day and Singles Day. I think that like you know, if you're a direct to consumer brand, 
whether or not you choose to participate in Prime Day, you know, you pr- it's, it's already June 10th. We're recording this on June 10th. You probably already have to have your inventory into Amazon pretty soon because it's going to be sometime uh, early next month. What I would say, though, is even if you are if you are on Amazon or if you're not participating on Amazon and you generally or have run sales in the past, Prime Day is a perfect day to run a sale and try and get some of that revenue onto your direct-to-consumer website and send out an email about it. Like it's a day that, like you know, people are geared to shop like they are on Black Friday. So yeah. you want to take advantage of that. I had no idea that Prime Day was doing twelve billion in sales and Black Friday was nine point two billion. I guess yeah. it's e-commerce. Uh, so maybe like you know, uh, Black Friday it's still overall a bigger shopping day, but still surprising that even in e-commerce, Prime Day would beat uh, Black Friday. Like that blows my mind. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I see brands that are just running Prime Day, like you know, Facebook ads that'll just say Prime Day sale, early Prime Day sale, late Prime Day sale, all the time, and they're they're just trying to get people to buy and click, and it's a it's, it's a smart yeah. ad, and I think people should be doing that on Prime Day. Like, you shouldn't just let Amazon own the holiday in China, where you know Alibaba started the concept of Singles Day, and the reason it's on November 11th is it's all ones, like it's for single people. You know, it's because it's one one slash one one. Everyone in China now takes advantage of that. It's not like only Alibaba is running sales or campaigns that day. Everyone in direct consumer is running sales there. You should think about that on Prime Day in the United States as well. For some reason, like as you're saying this, one thing popped up in my head, which is when you put an ad out on the internet, you know, let's say you're selling cookware, right? It's like, hey, home chefs, come buy this cookware. It's almost like you're sticking an arm out to like grab somebody's hand and then pull them up over the edge of the cliff. And the more relevant things you have in your ad, for example, saying Prime Day or even Mother's Day or Father's Day, it's just more hands that help pull somebody over the cliff. And if they decide not to click on the ad, you push them over. Yeah, exactly. Step on the (laughs) (laughs) canvas. Moyes, one of my favorite parts of launching a brand is launching their mobile app, mainly because of all of the features you get inside a mobile app that you don't get on a traditional mobile site. So for example, push notifications, I think, are fantastic. If you can get the opt-in for push notifications, you have a golden ticket as a brand. Secondly, I love that in Tapcart, you have these content modules. You can add different pieces of content, YouTube videos, recipes, try-on hauls, all these different things that you can't necessarily make native to the experience of the mobile site. It's really great because it allows you to keep your app like up to date and fresh. So if it's like July 4th or Mother's Day or Valentine's Day or Black Friday season, you can update the app really easily so that you can be relevant to the time period you're in. Couldn't agree more. And if you want to try TapCart, go to tapcart.com slash limited and get up to two months free of TapCart. Okay, we're talking about Prime Day. This is a good transition to something I want to chat about a little bit, which is like what metrics people pay attention to on a daily or weekly or monthly or quarterly basis. Um, I feel like we've chatted about this a little bit in the past, but I was listening to a podcast uh, just earlier today and they were chatting about this. And I was wondering, like, you know, for a long weekend, I don't know how much of your time is spent on long weekend. You know, you're running another business that's much larger than long weekend. So I would imagine it's a small percentage of your time. Are there metrics on a daily or weekly or monthly basis that you look at for that business? I would say probably not specifically for long weekend, but if I I pull up like uh, reports that we look at for client businesses on a daily basis, these are some pretty depth, in-depth reports. And it's usually divided into about 20 sections. I guess before we start there, what do you use to pull up these reports? 
you know, is it an Excel spreadsheet? Is it Facebook ad manager? Is it Shopify? Is it Triple Will? What is it? Is it North Beam? What is it? So what we'll do is like, we'll set up a viewer in a software called Watergraph. And then we import all of the, we connect all of the data sources. So it has pipes in. Yeah. And then we will basically build each module of this report. So we'll, we'll say, you know, we want to see total ad revenue or total ad spend or, or total items sold or total shipping costs. And then based on all the connections, we can create formulas to build the report. And then do you have to use Zapier in order to pump anything into Watergraph or does it generally have enough integrations where everything pumps in there? Yeah, pretty much everything pumps in here. I'm going to send you a text screenshot of what this looks like so you can see. I've never even heard of this and I don't think you've ever talked about this. It's a very underground tool. It's a very like shitty design tool, I would say as well, which is probably why I don't talk about it much. Yeah. But it gets the job done in terms of reporting the right numbers. One really good analytics tool that I, I've used recently that connects directly into Shopify, as well as all your other things, is called Peel. Have you ever used Peel Analytics? Uh, no, I looked at it a long time ago. Uh, it's P-E-E-L, right? Yeah. I looked at it a long time ago. No, you use that now? Yeah, it's, it's a little pricey. But I would say if you're doing north of six figures a month, it's definitely worth it because you can easily build customer segments. It's not just like your highest spenders or your high, you know high frequency shoppers. It's like people that it thinks are about to be you know customers that are never coming back, or people who came in on a discount and never came back again, or people who are promising based on their shopping habits and you know just need a deal to get over the fence all the way to just pretty detailed analytics. Like it almost seems like their team is um, just a bunch of e-commerce, like former e-commerce operators who built every possible metric in here. Wow. Good for them. That's awesome. Uh, you know, they've got big clients. Jones Road Beauty is massive. They've got Caraway, a couple smaller guys, Byte and Cora. So you're using Peel and you're using uh, Whatagraph. Yeah. The, the benefit is like Peel builds all this for you. Yeah. And so like we, we use Peel for like a long weekend, for example, but with, with clients, we use Watergraph just because then we can create every report super custom how we want it. And it's also much cheaper. So uh, I'm looking at the graph, uh, like the one you sent over, and I'm not certainly not going to mention the uh, brand name. So basically you're looking at what is overall revenue? What is revenue per session? What is AOV? How many transactions were there? What was your Facebook ad spend, your Google ad spend, all that kind of stuff? That's what you're looking for on a daily basis for a single, for any given brand. Exactly. You know what's not on here and what's a number I never look at, which is so weird. Everyone always talks about this number and I'm like, I never think about this number. It's conversion rate. Everyone thinks yeah. about conversion rate all the time. I honestly never look at conversion rate. It's the number yeah. that I feel like uh, it's the number that everyone talks about the most that I care the least about. Everyone's like, what's your conversion rate on your website? I'm always like, I've got no idea. A native, I had no idea. I'm just like, look, we're trying to drive as much traffic as we can and get people to buy it. I look at CAC. And so if the click costs a dollar and one out of every two people buy, you know, I like that a lot more than if a click costs two cents and one out of every 10,000 people buy. Like, you know, I, I guess what I care about is what, like, what does my CAC look like? Everything else is, it doesn't matter to me uh, except CAC. And so I just be like, this ad is yeah. working because it's got a lower CAC. I have no idea what the conversion rate is on this ad versus this ad. 
And that was probably a terrible way to look at it. I wonder if I could have done a better job if I paid attention to conversion rate. It's just a number that I never got excited about. I do look at conversion rate and yeah. mainly I, I like to look at it closer when there's sales going on or before yeah. or after weekends. Like I, I try to understand, especially around, I, actually, I would say I don't look at site conversion rate as a macro outside of if we're running a sale. And even then it's like, it's pretty expected. You know, if you're running a sale, you'll get to like six or seven. If you're not running, running a sale, you should be like two to three. Yeah. But where I do like to look at is uh, conversion rate based on where somebody landed on your site. So for example, you know, if you're running DPA ads or you're running multiple different campaigns, it's really important to understand your AOV and conversion rate by the path of which somebody landed or came into your store. So basically you're saying depending on the page they land, if they land on the product page, it might be different than if they land on a landing page that you've custom built. Um, yeah, even, even multiple, yeah, yeah, like across different product pages, understanding which products are actually driving new customers, which products are driving different types of customers, you know, different demos from different customers. Yeah. And also using that, that because that, you know, that's one thing like Facebook ads manager probably doesn't take into consideration too much and neither does North Beam or Triple Whale. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we only sold one product when I was running it, which was a deodorant. And so it was never like, you know, there were multiple pages to run people to. It was like, okay, you're going to go through the deodorant product page. And so there, there wasn't like other items that would have lower conversion rates. I always pay attention to revenue and CAC, which is on here. Um, the thing I look at, or I used to look at rather, was CAC by ad. I'd be like, which one of these ads is driving, like, you know, buy from a from a, a creative perspective, I'd be like, what creative is working? What creative isn't working on a daily basis? Uh, the other thing I would look at on a daily basis is inventory levels. You know, I was always like, do we have enough product at our 3PL for this or are we going to run out? Like it's going to inform my ability to increase ad spend and also just run sales. Like, are we going to run out of sales? The other thing right. I would look at as well, which is a more of a vanity metric was like cash in my bank account. Obviously that varied a lot because I might've just paid a PO or I might've paid for freight or something to that effect. I would just be like, is there cash increasing overall? Like, because that makes me feel good. It makes me want to work harder. Um, right. On a weekly basis, the thing that I would look at, like on a daily basis, I'd be like, how much inventory is at my 3PL? On a weekly basis, I would be like, do I have enough plastic deodorant components at my 3PL to produce yeah. in the next few weeks? So uh, I would look at daily inventory at 3PL. Weekly, do I have enough plastic at my 3PL? One of the other metrics that I would pay attention to that I think not, I, I don't know why this metric I think is important is like Stripe versus PayPal. Like if you have more PayPal purchases, I feel like you're probably gearing towards an older demographic and possibly a demographic that trusts you less. When I think of PayPal, I think of someone being like, I'm not sure if this person is a trustworthy person to purchase from. And that's why I want to use PayPal because it offers a ton of protection. That's why eBay bought PayPal because they're like, look, all of these transactions are happening in a way where you probably don't trust the other party. So we've purchased this company that offers a lot of protection and you can get your money back if there's no tracking number to, or anything to that effect. And we make it super easy through PayPal. You don't have to call up your bank. You don't have to go through 50 steps. You just say, I, I need to contest this charge and PayPal starts digging into it. And so I looked, I always looked at Stripe versus PayPal for a few reasons. One is I paid a different convert, I paid a different amount to each of them when I was running native. And two, uh, I want to understand uh, like how trustworthy does my site look? And I think the, the more trustworthy it got, the lower percentage of sales were in PayPal. Like the more reviews we had, the more customer testimonials, the more we put social proof, the more we built our brand, 
the board right. provided uh, clarity that we offered SSL certificates, that's that kind of stuff, PayPal sales would actually drop. There's one thing that I want to talk about, which is like what I looked at quarterly. I never looked at like, you know, there's all these flows. I never looked at like Clavio. You know, when we were selling the business, there was one uh, buyer who's like, send us all the open rates of every one of your emails that you've ever sent uh, through Clavio. And I was like, are you? Uh, they're like, we just want to make the first board meeting super productive. And I was like, go fuck. I was like, are you crazy? Every single open rate, that's something that I don't even pay attention to. Like, I don't know yeah. the open rate of every single email of every one of my flows. Like, you know, the flow will have 400 emails in it or 300 emails in it or 100 emails in it. Like, you know, it goes on basically forever. Uh, like, b- between the day you gave me your email address and the day you, you die, the day someone emails me and says, hey, uh, the person who gave you that email address is now dead. Please stop emailing them. <laughs> My flow exists at native, you know? And so I don't know what the open rates are. Like, you know, certainly off the top of my head, but on a quarterly basis, I would start looking at things like, what is my sign-up form opt-in rate? Has it changed materially? Like, does it change based on the ad that I'm running? What is the open rate and click-through rate of campaigns that I'm sending? What's the best time to send emails? Uh, That kind of stuff. I I used to dig into that stuff quarterly. And I'm curious to see how your clients dig into it. Do you have any idea what they look like? I don't know if you guys are digging into it yourself or if they're digging into it independently. How often are you guys doing that kind of stuff? Maybe more monthly, actually. I mean, sign-up form conversion rate is something we look at pretty closely. I would say the the welcome flow revenue is another one. And then the, not post-purchase, but more so like, you know, somebody's bought. We're not trying to get them to buy before they get their product, but after they've bought, you know, they're ready to buy again, we'll put them in another flow and, and that one's important. A lot of the brands we work with, there's usually a number we get. Like uh, our client will say something like, you know, if we can get three purchases, we're almost guaranteed to have this person for this LTV. Or if yeah, we can get yeah, this yeah. past four purchases, you know, we see that 98% of those customers experience this number of LTV. And so everything, depending on what that number is, we will just orient everything to hit those numbers or to get past that number. That is usually the simplest way to think about how to structure email versus yeah. you know every flow needs to be perfect or every number needs to be you know a certain number. That's so interesting. That started a long time ago, I think, at Facebook when Facebook realized if we can get you to add nine friends or something like that in the first week of uh, joining yeah. Facebook, we know you'll never leave. So our goal now is just how do we get you to add nine friends? Everything else will work work itself out as long as we get there, right? Do you create like an event inside Google Analytics or an analytics manager to be like, what is the sign-up rate? Or do you just look at Klaviyo or PostScript or whatever you're using? I know we do Klaviyo for sure, Klaviyo and PostScript. I want to say there is another place we look at that metric outside of just Klaviyo as well, because I think there's some limitations around A-B testing within Klaviyo, but I'm not sure where. It might be GA. Yeah, I don't look at that as often as it sounds like you look at it, and I wonder if that's a mistake. There's one thing I did want to mention, actually. I had this e-commerce brunch in uh, in New York uh, a week ago or so, and you know, I try to keep everything that was uh, said there confidential, but there's one thing that's, I don't think this is confidential. This is the first time I've seen it. Jones Road Beauty has a one-page Shopify click, uh, checkout. Have you seen this before? Have you Are any of your brands on one-page checkout? Yeah, a few are. I know Jones Road just got it recently. A few are, and a few are still pending. Have you seen an increase in conversion rate on this one-page checkout versus the multi-step checkout on Shopify? I haven't even looked. Okay. 
you know, when we moved from WooCommerce to Shopify and Native, our conversion rate went down a bunch because it was multi-step checkout because you couldn't enter the discount code or the you know the gift card code until you got to the checkout page. You couldn't do it on the card page unless you built it manually, which we ended up doing. Even then, I'm a little surprised by the like. I'm looking at Jones Road's um, you know checkout page right now. I'm, this is obviously a Shopify p- built page. It's not Jones Road page, but you know one of the things that they asked for, and we talked. Like I remember Harley mentioned this right after we did the interview with him. If you go to Jones Road's checkout page, they say, "What's your credit card number? What's the expiration date? What's the security code? What's the name on the card?" And then for billing address, the first thing they ask is, "What's your first name? What's your last name?" And I'm like. Literally a field above, you asked, what's my name on the card? That is my billing first name and last name. That is how billing addresses work. And I'm still stunned that they don't have, that they haven't removed this. Why do you need the name on the card and then the billing name, first first name and last name? Those are the same things. And like one of the other things that they do is they say first name and last name as the billing address on the card, but they only, like those are two separate fields. Name on card is one field. Mm. And so I don't understand why, if like they've tested this, is name on card should that be one field or two fields? And why is it in two? Di- why is it different on two of them? Where two di- there's two different name fields and you've separated it. Yeah. The other one I know you don't need is, uh, or I know that at least like Apple does is makes it easy to just be like, yeah, this is also my billing address or vice versa. And yeah. the other one is uh, address field number two which it looks like they may be removed here. But previously, I think they had address field number two. I don't even think that matters. In fact, I don't think any of the address for billing information really matters outside of the zip code. That's right. Yes. Because you're not like, when you're contesting a credit card charge, you're not like, give that guy's full address. You're just like, here's a zip code. That's all we know about. Like when you go to a gas station and you pay at the pump, they just say, what's your zip code? Because that's the only thing we need. Everything else, like, you know, we don't need. So I'm not sure why they ask all that information, but I'm glad that uh, it's exciting to see one page checkout. This is also just a good checkout with uh, the upsell on the top right and then the phone number. Do you see the, on the, the bottom right? The first bottom on, on the bottom right. That's yeah. a great spot for that. So this podcast that I was listening to earlier today was like, uh, you know, I, I've talked to a couple, I talked to one other guy this week and they're like, we really love post-purchase surveys. Like, you know, on the checkout page, we're like, where did you hear about us? We'll ask all these questions. Do any of your brands run that? Like, let me uh, let me start there. Do your brands oh, yeah, post course. purchase surveys on the thank you page? What do they? What software do they use to do that? Uh, no commerce, K N O commerce. Yeah, yeah. And then um, is that like? Tell me a little bit about what they've learned. I guess I always wonder why is that a survey on the thank you page instead of being a survey via email? Like, you just got this guy to purchase something. There's a post purchase pop up. What if you ask for a phone number and say, hey, I'll give you uh, shipping information if you give me your phone number now. Let me text you discounts. Because the number of people who subscribe, like on Jones Road's page where it says text offers, you put in your phone number here and then you have to click subscribe, I guess, uh, next to it. And that's not part of the checkout flow. You know, like if you put in your phone number there, it's not part of the checkout flow. Why wouldn't you just ask for phone number on the thank you page so that you can get this guy's phone number and start, uh, you know, hitting him up with text messages? I always thought yeah. this purchase survey was taking valuable real estate away from the ability to earn more revenue. I think post-purchase surveys are good for two two main reasons. One is like if you if you're launching a new channel and you want to see the impact of the new channel in a more yeah. qualitative and sort of like faster way that doesn't rely on uh, pixel issues, then I think it's great. So, for example, if you launch TikTok ads or if you launch an influencer campaign 
And you can immediately just open and quickly just see, you know, influencer as a traffic or as a purchase source going up. I think it's valuable in that way. I think the second place it's valuable is actually like if you're a, a younger brand and you don't really understand why people are buying your product. You know, for example, if you set if you're if you're a brand that's doing less than five million or ten million a year, there's a good chance you actually have no idea why people are choosing to buy your product. Like that, you don't know what made them prompt opening and, and giving their credit card today. And so I think it's actually a good spot to ask questions like, you know, what brought you to our site today? Where was the ad that you saw? Because, you know, that is technically the the first place they discovered you, which is a really important metric to know. The other one is like, who did you purchase for? So if you sell something that is possibly giftable, I like to ask, you know, who did you purchase it for? Yeah, um, another good. one that's a good one to ask is like, how long how long did you know that we exist before you decided to make a purchase? Because I think a lot of us get caught up in the like the quick dopamine of launching a campaign, but sometimes there's good value in knowing that, you know, something took six months or four months or 35% of people needed one to two months of consideration before buying your product. And then the last one that I think is interesting is like open-ended questions. So asking people, what stopped you from making a purchase? Or did you almost you know, leave us? Why? The other one is, why did you choose to purchase today? So if you've known about this brand for three months and you just answered that, what made you purchase it today? And I think all these questions, they're valuable to know, but obviously after some point, they probably start to look the same. And then I think that's when you can decide if that real estate is still worthy of that value. I agree with everything you said. I just don't think that the post-purchase survey should be, uh, the survey should be post-purchase. I think it should be, I don't think it should be on the thank you page. I think it should be on the, it should be an email a day after you purchase or an hour after you purchase. Because I think that the thank you page can be used for something to generate revenue either now or later on, which is a post-purchase upsell or, uh, you know, a text message capture if you haven't gotten their text message. That's a good idea. If I were a brand today, and I'm not running a brand, but if I were a brand today, I'd email that customer right after, an hour after they make a purchase and be like, hey, uh, here's the survey, please fill it out. I, I also think that there's a lot of value in the, the time period between you making a purchase and you receiving the package to get people super excited about it. Like, you know, uh, some Great. people have done like founder videos where they're like, here's a founder saying, hey, Nick, thank you very much for purchasing. And I think they use like AI to formulate the, hey, Nick. Uh, thank you very much for purchasing, which is amazing. I've seen people say, here are instructions. Like, this is how to start using our product when, when we get it. Uh, you know, we used to do this email where we're like, oh, we're sending out your package right now. Uh, you know, we got the guys who polished uh, the jewels at the Tower of London to like clean your package. You're going to love it when you get it. It's a real problem when there was a mistake with the package because people were <laughs> like, I thought the guy was polishing it uh, and, you know, you sent the wrong product out. Well, that was a little bit of a joke, but yes. <laughs> and so I think that like there's a lot of value in those emails between the day you purchase and the seven days later when you get the item. And like one of those emails can be a, hey, uh, here's a survey. But I think that post-purchase real estate can be, give us your phone number in case we don't have it already. Here's a post-purchase upsell. Um, you know, what what else can we sell you? Can we do, yeah, post-purchase upsell. Can we do that right now? Like, can we do that? Like, you know, would you want to buy something right now? Even in the first email within an hour, it could be, do you want to add something else to your cart? You bought us, you bought a native deodorant from me. Do you want to add a body wash? It's only been an hour. We haven't packed your cart. Here's an email an hour later. Are you sure you don't want a body wash that's the exact same scent? Right. It's going to go really well with your deodorant. 
Like I think there's a lot of value in those first like seven days that people don't tap right now. Yeah, fully agreed. You know, DoorDash does a really good job of this. When you order on DoorDash, they will basically find all the spots on the way from the place you ordered and your yeah. delivery spot. And they'll say, do you want chips from 7-Eleven? Do you want a donut? Do you want you know a boba tea? Do you want this? And it's just all on the way. And it's like such good incremental revenue to them. I've done that before. I, Uber does it as well. I, and I'm an Uber loyalist and like um, they will... Uh, They'll do that, and I've done it. Uh, like I've added an item from like Seven Eleven, but it actually takes a lot more time as a result of having to go pick it up. Like I, yeah. I thought it'd be like you know it'll it'll come to you at the same time, and you're like, oh no, this is going to take another twenty minutes. It turns out. Also, Seven Eleven's birthday is July 11th. I didn't know which shop day was, but you know my uh, blood is still in gas stations. <laughs> That's, That's Slurpee Day, free Slurpee Day. That's right, the free Slurpee Day. Okay, there's one last thing I'd love to chat about, which is something completely off topic, not something we've chatted about in the past. Which is, have you heard of a brand called love.com? It's uh, a Ryan Breslow's, uh, you know, the CEO Bolt, his new startup. Yeah, I remember when he was telling us about this. He was selling it a few months ago as people powered pharma with a decentralized a DAU infrastructure where members can buy love tokens with Ethereum or another reserve currency, discuss homeopathic and other pharmaceutical alternatives, then vote which of them should be tested in clinical trials, which is the most complex. Like, I was like, I, I uh, like, I saw this in TechCrunch article. I was like, I don't understand what any of this is. Now, like if you go to love.com, it's Amazon for supplements, uh, which is so uh, exactly what it should be. And I just thought it was so interesting that he went from this DAU thing to- um, It's it's actually a supplement e-commerce marketplace that uses Bolt Checkout. That is basically that's right. what love.com is. I remember when it was first announced- it was all about like crypto and decentralized something, this and that. I didn't understand any of that stuff, but I do see on the homepage, there's a hydration drop and I got one in my hand. So it's not oh, that wow. crazy. Did you get that from here? Did you get that from? Uh, no, no. No, okay. Yeah. I got this uh, directly. I just texted you this product page. You got to look at it. The product page photos are so hilariously bad. I'm like, this wasn't taken with an oh. iPhone. This was taken with a Motorola Razor. Yeah. But- I mean, look, it's a new startup, so everyone should be embarrassed on their, uh, like, you know, your Definitely. first uh, website. If you're not embarrassed, embarrassed, you're not being you startup enough. Yeah, yeah, you waited too long. And I, I you know, this, I, I really wish him well. I, I love the idea of, like, Amazon for healthier products. I wish Yeah, this, this definitely needs to exist. It definitely needs to exist. I'm not sure if there, there's too much leakage. You're like, great, you know what? I do need these hydration drops, but why should I get them from here when I can probably get them from Amazon and get them in two days? Like, I bet there's going to be a little bit of leakage when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. If you had to guess, how much do you think Love.com's domain name cost him? The Love.com domain name. Oh, man. I would say probably anywhere from three to $5 million. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm going to try and find out and get it to you for the next episode. But that is, a, you know, that is a great domain name, love.com. Yeah, it is. Awesome. Uh, that's all I got. Cool. Yeah, that's all I got for today as well. That was a fun episode. Yeah, that was really fun. Next episode, I'm going to come with some info on how the whole new TikTok shopping is working, the setup, and how it's working. Okay, super excited. You know, a year ago, everyone was like, TikTok is the new Facebook. And I feel like today, everyone's like, Facebook is actually all will always be Facebook and TikTok is dead. Yeah. And so I'm curious to see if there's, you know, a change in their advertising uh, game. That'd be great. Awesome. 
All right. We'll see you next episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 